Psychological meaning. We're gonna dive deep into your inner world, so you can discover where and how you need to grow. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, MDiv earner, and all-around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. If you enjoy this podcast do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of that business. Let's dive in. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, I had to walk into his shabby little apartment that smelled of burned lasagna and regret. He was no Rick, and I most certainly am no Ilsa. Back in grad school, I went through this phase. I guess it wasn't just grad school. It was also in college and maybe even a little bit in high school that I really wanted to be a film connoisseur. I was so in love with the idea of things, the idea of being this particular kind of person, much more than the actuality. And I'd watch film after film and I'd be chasing the persona of someone who appreciated highbrow art. And really, I mostly preferred the illusion over the reality. Casablanca is my best example. I've seen it twice. Those of you movie buffs, I know you're going to tell me I should see it at least once again now that I'm older and maybe a little wiser. But both times I've seen it, it felt so slow and so boring. And in some really strange way, just totally incomprehensible to me. I'm somebody who likes to imagine the possibilities. And yet in that movie, each possibility was shattered as elegantly as Bergman gliding from one man to another, as wretchedly as Bogart brooding in the bar, slamming his fists down and, you know, stating a thoroughly iconic line. That movie left me feeling empty, but not just empty. It left me feeling conscious of my emptiness. In our 11th episode, Today, you and I are going to sit with the defeat of fantasy to explore the emptiness that it leaves behind and allow our morbid curiosity to awaken to what happens in the dead land, in the hope of empty men. And we're going to let ourselves, I hope, acknowledge how much reality really, really fucking hurts. He's a boy who will never love me. We're sitting on the sofa in his apartment, just filled with a mod podge of garage sale and grandparent leftover attic furniture. It was an aesthetic popular among the grad school crowd. He's a nester, though he'd deny it. The reminder of his bachelor status always surprises me when I get up to go pee and the toilet seats up. There's a television show playing, And we're mostly watching it. We're chatting inanely during commercial breaks. And as the commercial break ends and I take a sip from my beer, 
My beer's mostly gone warm. And as I'm sipping it, I recall someone once describing warm beer as tasting like horse piss. They were not wrong. And I, I make a face and I think about sharing that thought, that quip, hoping maybe he might find me witty or amusing or fun. Why bother, though? And the tension between us is already humming, and I wonder, not for the first time, if this all is just some drama I've created to keep myself sated in the midst of this romantic dry spell. To be frank, I can't really decide. I make up many stories about many people, many possibilities. I tell myself stories and stories and stories, and it's not always clear if they're true or not. But in that moment in time, I know it's not true. I'm not making up a story. I, I can feel the tension. I can feel the connection, as tenuous as it may be. And while the tension is there, it's only a thin sheen that covers our fears. The show we're watching has functioned before as some sort of Jungian key, that we both have attempted to utilize in unlocking the secrets of our apprehension. It doesn't work. Fiction and reality are too often in a stalemate, disregarding the truth, and we're more focused on who tells a more compelling story. I look over at him, and he's glancing over at me, and our gazes bump. Embarrassed, we stare at each other for a moment that feels to go on for an eternity. We're frozen. Not just in actuality, but but internally in a way that I, I don't have words for. I know in that moment something passes between us, and my heart quickens, and then I force my gaze away. I'm still not sure what I read in his gaze. What he read in mine certainly wasn't love. I don't think it was lust. Fiction would call it longing. Reality. Regret. It's one of those moments that sits with me still. Years and years and years later... And it's a moment that happened with a specific person, but it could have happened with any number of people. I got a, a new supervisor who I've mentioned to you all before, and I don't know, I can't remember if I've explained to you what a supervisor in therapy is, so let me let you know. As therapists, we are... What's the word? It's not quite privilege. It's not, it's not quite right. We are honored. We are allowed. We are, we are special. We're special in that we get to sit with people and unwrap them piece by piece by piece. I told you all last week some about how my therapists have both unwrapped me and also sometimes given me cause to wrap myself up tighter, to layer on defense. And so when you're a therapist, the, the trick is always, how do you unwrap somebody in a way they can continue to function in the world? How do you help them unwrap themselves? And, and can you trust them to know how much they can tolerate and how much they can't? 
And I think we learn. We learn how much we can tolerate and how much we can over time. But it it takes time. It takes effort. And so when you're a therapist and you're in this position of holding people in a way that doesn't actually seem that extraordinary if you're like there in the room, you're kind of like, yeah, okay, somebody's telling you these painful stories or somebody's telling you about what's going on in their lives. But you don't just soothe as a therapist, you challenge. And when you challenge the other, you have to know how much of that is for them and how much of that is you playing out your shit. I guess it's also true for soothing. How much of the soothing are you doing for you and how much of it is for them? So when you sit in this kind of position, it's wise not to do it alone. We all have blind spots. We all have places that it's really more about us than it is about them. And so we need to have somebody who calls us out on our bullshit and also soothes us and holds us as we do this this extraordinary work. And I don't mean that as I'm extraordinary. Although maybe I am. I, I mean that in what an interesting, extraordinary job to have where you get to uncover the other and allow them to see and be seen as they are. So I have a supervisor and I talk to my supervisor about cases, generally with some personal information, certainly obscured. I want to protect the privacy of my clients, but I, I talk to my supervisor and we talk about themes and patterns and what's going on within me and how am I showing up in the room and how is the other showing up in the room and, and what can I do to meet them? Meet them not better, but meet them deeper. How can I understand what is going on inside of them? So that's what we do in supervision. Also, my supervisor has really great art, so I often admire his art in the background and and wish that I had some art in my own background for clients to admire. So Bradley and I, my supervisor and I, we were talking about repetition compulsion. Uh, actually, we've been talking about it on a pretty regular basis. I, I've been working with him since January, February, February of this year. So just a handful of months, although 2020 feels like a decade. So I've been working for Brad, with Bradley for what psychically feels like a decade, what is reality-based only seven or eight months. We talk about repetition compulsion a lot. And it's actually a phrase he taught me. And he just casually mentioned it one day, assuming, I guess, that I just would know what he was talking about, that I would know the phrase. I did not have a fucking clue. Here's a secret for you. I often don't. I often don't know what people are talking about when they use jargon. There's so much jargon in so many life areas that I have just never learned. And I don't know if that is, I don't know, some sort of psychological defense I have that I block out learning jargon, or it's the sense that I'm always playing catch up of trying to make sense of what others mean, how they speak of things, about things. And so when Bradley mentions these various psychoanalytic terms, he's mentioned others that I won't tell you about today, in part because I don't remember what they all are. When he mentions these terms, just like when anybody mentions something, I don't know what they mean, I often nod and make myself a little note internally. 
Ooh, I gotta go look that up. Ooh, I gotta check that out. Except, when he first mentioned this, repetition compulsion, I listened, I did my nod, I made the note, I gotta look this up after. But I did something new. Something I was actually really proud of doing. I didn't go on my Google spiral, my Wikipedia spiral that I often go down. But that when he said that and he talked a little bit more, I said, you know, Bradley, I don't actually know what repetition compulsion is. And he was surprised. And I don't know that he was shocked, but he was certainly surprised because I seem to know so many things. I'm so talented. Oh, so many lovely things about me. How could I not know this? And he didn't say that in a shaming way, just in a a surprised way that actually made me feel delighted and and seen. Oh gosh, here's this person who knows all of these, like, it feels like French phrases sometimes that people can just say, like, je ne sais quoi. Actually, I don't even know what je ne sais quoi means. I don't even know if I'm saying it correctly. But my point is, people will say that, and I, I just I want to be in the know. I want to be on the inside. So I was really proud when I told Bradley, like, Bradley, I think you think I have training. I do not. I don't know much about the defenses. I don't know the names or or the the phrases that go with them. Except it turns out I do. I, I don't necessarily know the words or phrases. That's true. But I, I do know the feeling. I, I, I do know the thing itself, even if I don't always know the name for it. And and I keep talking about repetition compulsion. You probably don't know what it is either. Maybe you are psychoanalytically trained, or maybe you have a therapist who's psychoanalytically trained who, in kind of a breach of character, uh, explained to you what it is. But let me explain to you what it is now, just in case you don't know, like I didn't know. Repetition compulsion is a psychological phenomenon in which a person repeats an event or its circumstances over and over and over again. It's it's a reliving of a pattern, a relationship, a heartbreak, a scene, over and over and over again. Nobody's ever said this to me, but I kind of wonder if that's where deja vu comes from. That The sense of, I've done this before. This has happened to me before that we're in this cycle of playing the same story out again and again and again. As I'm recording this, I just took a long weekend. I took a Friday, a Saturday, a Sunday, a Monday, and today's Tuesday. And I'm only recording because this podcast is due to my editor uh, in just a few just a few days uh, by tonight. So they can she can edit it for me and put it up for you to listen to on Sunday as you're listening to it. And so, why was I talking about that? Oh, so on my little mini vacation, which I have just sat around and read romance novels and watched TV and just not done much at all, except I did go for a run, which I'm very proud of, but it has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. One of the TV shows I've been watching, really rewatching, is Once Upon a Time. And Once Upon a Time is so interesting, and it has so many psychological, interesting archetypes and tropes woven in. I really like it quite a bit. But I'm on the first season right now, and a lot of what the first season is, is repetition compulsion. It's playing out the same things with different names, 
different surroundings, different even rhythms to the pattern, but the pattern is the same. The people are going to fall in love with who they've fallen in love with. They're going to hate who they've hated. They're going to act according to type. And repetition compulsion is when we are even in a new space, a a new way of being, or so we think, but we play out old stories that we remain unaware of, unconscious of, that we're doing the same thing that we've done before. When I explain it to clients, I often talk about the movie Groundhog Day, except I haven't seen the movie Groundhog Day in I don't know how long. And the idea, though, is you wake up and you have to do the same thing again. And then you go to sleep and you have to wake up and do the same thing again. And it's not just the same task. It's not just the same people. It's literally the same thing every single day. And the only way the pattern ever really breaks is when we learn how to connect differently. Pretty sure that's how Bill Murray breaks the pattern. Should put it on my next vacation to watch list, Groundhog Day. Repetition compulsion is something we all do. Uh, I think it's a defense that no one escapes. And in part, the reason that we do it is we want to have a different outcome. We want the relationship to go differently. We want to get needs met that didn't get met. Right before I'm recording this podcast, I had therapy today, doing this new thing that I go twice a week, which is, it's cool and scary and delightful and actually much easier than I thought it would be to have more space, to have more time, to ease off the pressure. And so I was telling Cheryl, I was like, oh, Cheryl, you're on the podcast this week, which is sort of like a weird inception to just talk to her about it now, talking to you guys about it, but told her, I was like, oh, and I didn't tell anybody your last name because I don't want anybody, I don't want to share you with anybody. Also, you're full. You don't have any space. But we were we were talking about this and we were talking in some ways about repetition compulsion, about how I'm learning how to do something new in giving myself more space, giving myself more time, taking off the pressure, not pushing myself in the ways that I have before. And it feels very disorienting. <laughs> probably in a good way, but it it feels disorienting in that it's new and it's maybe even healthy. It's not maybe healthy. It is healthy to be doing all of those things. And the temptation is to go back to the old way. And so as we talked about this, we were talking about how I, I have this tendency to want to be mothered to want to be taken care of, to want to, to not be the caregiver, but the care given, the care receiver. That's the better way to say it. And how in the end, until I learn how to do that more effectively for myself, it doesn't matter how often I go to therapy. It doesn't matter how many other people I invite into my life until I learn to do what I need none of that's going to make that big of a difference. And uh, she had a metaphor that I don't quite remember, but it was basically, if you just keep trying to do it, if you keep trying to do it the old way, your psyche will eventually break. Pretty sure she didn't put it exactly that way. She's more eloquent than I am. But back to us, back to repetition compulsion, and back to that boy who will never love me. 
and didn't love me then. When we think about repetition compulsion, we go searching for the patterns, the patterns that start to show up again and again and again. And it's not that we go inside of ourselves and blame ourselves for what a terrible piece of shit person we are, however your shame likes to speak to you. It's about discovering, okay, here's a pattern. Here's something that keeps happening again and again and again. Surely not every single person is going to treat me like that. Not every single job is going to expect that of me. Not every single parent is going to react that way to me. Whatever it might be, when we can stop and look at the pattern, we can start to look for the initial imprint. Where did that begin? So to use this boy, who actually in many ways, although that story is about a specific person, it could have been any number of the people who I have either dated or have longed to date or or fell in love or really fell into fantasy from a distance with them. When we look at this pattern, we start to see that I have throughout the course of my life been accustomed to others wanting me for what I could do for them, wanting me for how I might entertain them, how I might engage them. They didn't want me, and they certainly didn't love me for who I am. And it's not that they're the villains in this story. They're not. There aren't actually a lot of villains in my life in general. It's that I kept going to a try well. I kept searching for something that was never going to be there. The person I'm thinking of, maybe the people I'm thinking of, struggled with intimacy. And not necessarily intimacy in terms of sex. I don't I don't know everybody's sex life, but they struggled with intimacy in allowing the other to not only really see them, but to embrace them. They struggled to allow themselves to be vulnerable. And not just vulnerable, but open in their vulnerability. They feared that no one would ever really want them. I'm sure if some of them are listening to me now, they would say, Jen, that's just a story you tell yourself. And it's probably true, because everything is projection in some way or another. And the story I tell myself is they feared intimacy. And for years, I tried to heal them of their fear of intimacy, without ever realizing it was me who was so scared to be close. It was me who was so scared to be unmasked, unrobed. Not, again, literally, we're not talking about sex, but we're talking about the vulnerability of being who I am with a variety of things in the the closet of my psyche. The closer I drew to them, the more I felt rejected. And the more I felt rejected, the more I longed to draw close. And if someone's rejecting you, you you can't actually draw closer to them. They will always hold you off. They will always hold you at a distance. And when the rejection hooks you, when you long, long, long to be closer, you're never going to get there. It's like, I don't remember his name, but the guy who was condemned to roll the stone up, was it 
Earth or a hill, I can't remember. You guys knew who I'm talking about, the Greek god or the Greek hero. We want to call syphilis, but I'm pretty sure that's not right. But as he he pushed the stone up, he worked so hard, so hard, so hard. And it just rolled on back down. He was certainly cursed to that, and so I don't know that he was choosing to do it. But I always I always think about him and wonder, like, what would it have taken to break the curse? What would it have taken to break in the pattern? What could he have done with that stone instead? What could he have done with his strength instead? Instead, he remained in a cycle that is not ending. We all get stuck in these patterns. It's often commonly shows up in romantic relationships, but it happens in friendships. It happens in our relationship with our parents or our primary caregivers from childhood. It happens with professors. It happens with bosses. It happens with coworkers. It happens. It's almost as if we have these slots for stories we can tell ourselves about the world and our lives. And it's, we only have so many slots or the image that's actually coming to mind is when you play those video games and by you, I literally mean you, I don't play video games because I rage quit. When you play video games and how some of them with the live action role playing, you've like these slots for you can be good at this, you can be good at that, but you only have so many things, right? There's a limit to the resources. And that sometimes is how it feels about the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and the stories we tell ourselves about others is we only have so many slots. And as we grow, as we mature, perhaps we start to get more availability for slots, but we're always human. We're always still limited. And so the stories we tell ourselves about friends occupy a certain amount. And the stories we tell ourselves about romantic partners occupy a certain amount. And until we learn to retell the stories and find new ways to understand the stories, we play out the same story again and again. There's another term in psychological circles. Bradley didn't teach me this one. Cheryl did, I think. In it's the idea of making repair and having a reparative experience. And again, coming back to therapy, in a lot of ways, that is what therapy does for us. It helps us have a reparative experience where something has gone wrong, or if not wrong, has gone painful. And so we learn to have a different way of engaging with it. I was listening with my husband the other day. There's this guy on Twitch who's like a psychiatrist who talks a lot about, well, I don't know. He talks a lot about therapy and he does I don't totally know what it is. I think he calls it coaching. It sounds like therapy to me. But he does coaching on this Twitch stream channel thing. And he was talking about, like, what is therapy the other day? And it it was so fascinating to listen to him because in a lot of ways, he, he was missing the diversity of what therapy is and, like, all of the different ways it exists. And he's certainly a more action-oriented kind of person. And so the way he was trained, as many psychiatrists are, is that he was trained, it sounds like, in the more psychoanalytic tradition, a la Bradley, a la many people. And he, he, he was struggling with the fact that there didn't seem to be real change that happens. And 
I I don't think I got too defensive in listening to him, but it was sort of like, oh, he doesn't know about the wide variety of how therapy can go and like what happens in therapy. And what often happens in therapy is you have somebody who is either action-oriented or insight-oriented, but when you have somebody who's really good, they will help you do both. They, They may have a place where they prefer to start. Let's take action and then reflect on it. Or let's reflect on it and then take action. But the fact is, change is going to come. Because when we're in relationship with another, particularly a relationship with somebody who's unlike others that we've been in relationship with, change will happen. That is not to say it will be a good or positive or healthy change, but change will happen because it does. Because it always does. When we're in relationship with anybody, we change often not in severe or drastic ways that are easy to mark, but we change. I think I've gotten a little off topic, but I don't actually totally know what the topic was other than projection and repetition compulsion and the fear of intimacy. And really, ultimately, the defeat. The defeat of the stories we tell ourselves old stories. It's it's a way to start to unmask not only the old patterns, but to just recognize them for what they are. Not trying to shine them up, not trying to justify them, not trying to glorify them. It's just seeing them. It's seeing how the stories you have told yourself for so long have impacted you. And it requires both the ability to be truly in your subjectiveness, truly in the story, as well as the ability to step outside of it as much as you can and get a more objective view on it. I've noticed in today's podcast, a phrase I've used a lot is, there's a story I'm telling myself, which is another thing I learned from Bradley that is less about jargon and more about connection. Or maybe it's that I I learned the phrasing from him, just like I learned the phrasing for repetition compulsion. I knew the concept very well. And I've told myself many stories about the boys who would never love me, about the jobs that never appreciated me, of the parents who were never able to soothe me, of the friends who have never seemed to really get me, and of you. I have so many stories I tell myself about you, this person who's listening, who is letting me talk to them, telling them my stories, telling them where I've been and who I've been. I tell myself many stories about you. I have no idea if any of them are true. Because the fact is, I I can't, right? I don't know you. Maybe I do. If I do, maybe send me a message. I'd be like, John, you do know me. You know my stories. Or maybe I don't know you and you still want to do that. Like, send me an email, for sure, for real. Uh, It's jen at athinkersguide.com. I will respond. Probably not immediately, because I suck at email. But the stories I tell myself about you, 
I have no way of knowing what is true and what is not unless we were to have a conversation. And probably not just one, but many. And I guess I wonder, as I'm sitting with you today, separated actually by just a handful of days, I wonder to myself, why are they listening? What do they get out of listening? What does it mean to them to listen? What happens for them when they listen? Is this just a voice in the background while they do dishes? Is this a way to try to make sense of their own story? Is this just being voyeuristic, wanting to hear another's vulnerabilities on display? And I ask myself, what are they needing? What what needs have they been ignoring? What desires have they forgotten or shoved to the back corner? What do they long for? The way Rick longed for Ilsa. The way, the way he gave up so much for her. Even when she really wasn't willing to give up that much for him. Who are the boys or the girls or the jobs or the friends or the parents? Who are the people who never loved you? Who are the people who will never love you the way you need to be loved? tell myself many stories, I have many questions. I have lots of unknowns about who you are, why you're here, what it is exactly that we're doing together, even though technically I guess I'm leading the way. I hold my curiosity about you in this journey of the apocalypse. And while I like to imagine all the possibilities... The point of today isn't really about the possibilities, but the defeat of our illusions, and about how hard it is to let go of what we've projected onto others, as well as how much we long to be seen for who we really are. Really, the question for all of us, I think, is what are we doomed to repeat when we stay unconscious? And what are we aiming to repair in the same old way in our unconsciousness that is not effective, that just keeps us in the same painful patterns. That movie that I loved more in theory than in fact. There's this line. I don't think it's that famous. It's just, it's a kind of bridge. But whenever I hear it, and I listened to it several times to get the quote right at the beginning of the podcast hour. Whenever I feel, hear that line, it feels a little bit like Apocalypse Calling. In the clip, in the movie, Rick is just beginning to let himself realize that Ilsa's not coming back. He's stuck in a kind of purgatory, a drink in front of him, and his eyes filled with longing. Maybe for the heaven of Ilsa, maybe for the sleepy ignorance of America. And just before he slams his fist down, he says, wistfully, I bet they're asleep in New York. I bet they're asleep all over America. We are. We have been. The real question is, when will we wake up to celebrate the defeat of what was? 
and embrace the possibility of what may be? Or is that just a story I tell myself? An old pattern I'm playing out? I don't know. But what I do know, what I do feel certain about, is if we choose to remain asleep in the apocalypse, or in Casablanca, we will grow to regret it. Maybe not today. Probably not tomorrow. But very soon. And for the rest of our lives. I hope you'll join me next week as we explore what it means to celebrate when everything has become raw. When there's there's more to mourn than to celebrate. Dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your death, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you'd like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As J.B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories, and tag me at Therapy for Thinkers. If you are not a social media person, totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right, that's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.